The subject for the evening talk is mindfulness of views and opinions. And in this talk I would like to give basically a commentary on a talk of the Buddha. And this uh, talk is taken out of a s small book which is called the Sutta which means talk, in fact, and yipata, which means collection. And the book is probably the oldest collection of the talks of the Buddha. And thus give a general summary of the, of the teachings. And in this, the Buddha explores and... and goes into, in the space of a few verses, what tends to take place when we find ourselves clinging and tied to views and opinions and the kind of uh, consequences of, of that. And I was reminded of, of this a little bit through a conversation which I had uh, recently at home. My daughter, Nashona, um, aunt had come to visit us and was spending a few days and I got into a conversation with her aunt the person's name is Hav it's a Welsh word meaning summer and the Shona's aunt is a, a Christian and a born again Christian and a certain fundamentalist view. And so in the conversation which began at about 10 o'clock in the evening and went on to about half past one in the morning, we had a, a, a flow of spiritual you know, religious discussion and exploration. And what was noticeable was that both of us um, would say quite sincerely and diligently kept to our experience and our perceptions and our understanding. And what was rather dis what was the distinctive factor was, it seemed to me, was both the form of language which was being used and I have this distinct memory, um, recollection that after an hour, an hour and a half or so, she um, took the Bible out of her um, bag. Perhaps this is why I brought this down in some... <laughs> 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 anyway. <laughs> sort of, anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> um, and in our, in our discussion and uh, ex um, exchange... Um, Together, one of the things which was noticeable, and it's not an, an uncommon situation, is even out of the field of experience and deep experience, out of the field of our um, understanding of it, it, and our communication of it through the views and through the language which we, which we use about it, we so very easily set up all sorts of separations and distinctions and conflicts. And out of our views and opinions, we begin to assume other, what others view about others and their views and opinions. And even when the background and the underlying thread to this is our actual experience. And this became quite um, apparent during the flow of this uh, particular conversation. And it seems sometimes with ourselves now, looking, us, looking into ourselves, that though we may come to a clarity and uh, uh, an understanding, yet it seems too that we so easily do identify ourselves with, we easily do wrap ourselves around what we perceive, what we view, the conclusions that we come to, and we can't see what that means in the world that we live in. 
And in the traditions, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, to its credit, over many, many centuries, there has been a tremendous exploration and inquiry into what views and opinions do in shaping our perception and the way they influence our way of looking and acting in the world. And there has been a stream of, you might call them, investigative meditators, past and present, who endeavor to watch the way view and opinion is formed, how it actually get it is expressed, and what, and particularly, what kind of intention is behind that view and that opinion. And one of the things which we do frequently, and this is Buddha touches on this in this passage, is that we believe, and this is in a way the crux to sustaining views and opinions, we believe that the way we see things is not only true and the way that it is, but actually how it is in some almost absolute sense. So frequently when we're speaking about the world, we, we, we separate the world from our perception of it. So, so we act as though we're talking about the world as it is, and not recognizing it's the perception of the world that really matters. And this shift to perception, to views, to interpretations, to analysis, is, as I say, it's been an ongoing thread for understanding, for liberation. And so one of the questions which frequently comes up for people, you know, if I just have views and opinions, if that's all that I've got in a way, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, how can I act in the world? I need views and opinions in order for me to be in the world, in order for me to be effective, to do things. So then the question comes, what kind of view is, in this Dharma language, is right view? What kind of understanding would we say is right understanding? And these kind of questions, are, as I say, have been a continuing area of uh, exploration because it enters into every single thought without exception everything we put down on paper everything which we, we every time we open our mouth so the influence of views and opinions and ideas and understandings whatever keep generating and thus, this stepping back, being mindful of this process and seeing what flows out of us. <coughs> the person abiding with a certain dogmatic view who considers it the true view and claims that, that it is, then disparages other views and regards them as inferior. In other words, when you and I, and we notice this in frequent situations, we have taken up a view frequently it's based on learnt, memorised, thought, experiences, all kinds of things. And we take up this particular position and we hold it. We become dogmatic about it, which shows not only in the content for us, but it shows itself in the tone and in the manner, in, in the way we generate it. When we start tightening ourselves around that, the, one of the immediate consequences of this is that we must see other views as inferior. We must, in, in the very elevation of our own posture about something, we can't help but undermine, dismiss, 
disregard, not hear what the other view is. And this polarization shows itself in, in the conflicts of the planet. And so one of the seems to be the important explorations for us is not only listening to what kind of views we do uphold and we do cherish, but also what happens in our way of listening to others and what he or she is saying. Let's just maybe take one or two uh, um, examples. <coughs> just, um, uh, actually, it's just this week, it's interesting. Uh, just um, eight years ago, <coughs> I was uh, en route to, uh, to Barry, and it was the, the time of the, um, um, the Democrat Convention. I remember all the Republicans, I can't remember. But anyway, it's the time of the convention. And in that um, particular month, it seemed very probable that uh, Mr. Reagan would be elected uh, president. And amongst the number of kind of liberal-thinking people, there was a certain amount of um, alarm, to put it mildly. And while sitting on this uh, uh, aeroplane, it just suddenly uh, struck me, as it has struck others, the necessity, perhaps, in a way, of finding ways and means to integrate together spiritual, political life. Because at that time, and there still is, there's a very strong, I may say, fundamentalist pattern which shows itself in America, and which... For some of us in Europe, by and large, is it's, it's there, but doesn't have the kind of privilege and power that's so noticeable here. And I can't... I've got a chance now to express some views and opinions, and I think I'll... <laughs> I think I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully non-dogmatically. And... One of the things which um, um, I've noticed um, with this, that how very, very easily it tends to generate itself, there's, uh, where there's a fundamentalism or a dogmatism, into all kinds of other areas. And sometimes I don't think we realize the, Im the impact, the outflow of it. And one of the areas which um, comes to mind, um, not unexpectedly because I think religion and... Um, Sexuality have often had, uh, um, haven't been very happy bedfellows, to use a pun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the things which I um, have noticed here in that regard is that when some, say, of the public figures, you had this, Mr. Hart would be uh, um, one of them, some of the, the Christian leaders who... Um, whatever, have not behaved themselves, or whatever. There seems to be a tremendous hue and cry about it. And in, and in, in, such, in such a way that it's like it's totally outrageous and unforgivable and tremendous kind of almost moralistic upsurge about these things. And, and I think there's a certain kind of not amongst the communities here, but certain kind of discomfort with sex sexuality in some way or other. And, I, and one of the things which I've noticed in... I'm only saying this to get it off my mind. It's, it's not altogether related to the talk, but I'm just... <laughs> uh, <laughs> so just when I go and catharting a bit, you just... Uh, <laughs> one of the things which I have no noticed um, in coming to um, America... Um, a couple of examples was there's been a recently um, an advertisement, I think it's either for Pepsi Cola or Coca Cola, and it was censored in America um, from the TV because it was too sensual. And the company had spent a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> showing this guy walking down some steps in some uh, bar in the desert 
And then a very beautiful woman there, and he opens up the fridge and he pours out his Coke or whatever. <laughs> and they're giving each other all the eye, blah, blah, blah. And he got censored in America. That's what I was told. He got censored in America. And I noticed that on the few occasions when I go to a beach in America, that you never see you know, bare bottoms pointing up towards the, oz em the ozone layer, you know, or bare breasts. You never see children without any clothes on, except on special, you know, except on special beaches. And sometimes I have the feeling that when I went to Queen's Lake nearby recently or to a uh, lake at Berkeley, it's, it feels sometimes like stepping back into the 1930s. And it's, it's a peculiar phenomena where there's so much liberal attitude here, and, and, and the censorship on your television is phenomenal. And I wonder, like for example, after nine o'clock in the evening, it's quite common to see on British television and all over Europe, sexual intimacy and nudity, um, full nudity, and, and, and sometimes the, the genitals. And it's not an uncommon after nine o'clock on ordinary state television. But in, Amer in America, it's, it's like, it's a no-go area, which I think is very unfortunate in this. But what's more unfortunate, I f feel, is that in that, what the media has done and attempts to do is to put, make sex and violence and speak about them collectively. Too much sex and violence. And, and I find it alarming in what's allowed on television in violence and equally alarming, what's not allowed in men and women and men and men and women and women being together sexually expressing human intimacy. One, it's a yes to the violence and a no to sexuality on, on television, as an example. And I, the, these things, I think, have their extensive influence and get taken for, norm, for normal. And so sometimes when one comes from uh, culture, even like the, even the British and the, the stiff upper lip men mentality, and there's still plenty of Victorian English people around, that even on the local beaches there, you know, nudity, at least partial nudity, family beaches, eight miles from my home, is the norm. And, I, and, I, and so I think in, in our relating, in our... Um, looking at um, various views and opinions, how this gets generated and how public figures get vilified here. And that, and that goes on, of course, elsewhere as well. And it seems to me what's required and needed of all of us is do, in some way or other, we subscribe to that? Do we forget that how easily we get caught up in views and opinions and putting down and disparaging and the perpetuation of gossip through the views and opinions. And there's certainly great value, obviously, in having an open society and a society in which all people uh, need to be subject to ex examination. But I think sometimes it just goes too far and someone is put down and disparaged and dismissed and may have a, a great deal to offer. And once again, as um, Buzz here just uh, telling me just uh, a little while ago, the same thing is going on. I'm, my gosh, I'm no Republican. But the convention is going on, and while you've been sitting here during the week, his, um, whatever you call it, prospective vice president, a young fellow named... What's his name? Quail or something? Uh, anyway, it's for, for, anyway, it's very young. <laughs> so this young fellow is 41 years old, and he's been selected to um, work, 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 with, uh, work with Mr. Mr. Bush. So 13,000 reporters have gone off down to this convention. They're not interested in what Bush's view is of the world, which is terribly disappointing to him. <laughs> all, they're in, all they're interested in is that 20 years ago, this young guy didn't want to go into Vietnam and got into the National Guard. 
And there's a hue and cry, apparently, about this. And it's such a distraction. I mean, 20 years has gone by. And the planet is in crisis, it's in strife, it's in suffering, it's in conflict. And that's what 13,000 reporters are talking about. So this, it's this missing somewhere, getting diverted in some way or other, which, and we get caught up in our ways, which I think hinders us from heart, from valuable views and concerns in life, from the application of right understanding and implementing them. And hopefully we, if we can watch and be mindful of ourselves so that we don't feed into what is, what is frequently kind of very entertaining in some peculiar way. <laughs> but then it goes on in the, the text here. <laughs> How he just discouraged a million views and opinions. <laughs> it's a, When one sees personal advantages from the things that one has seen, heard, or experienced, or from particular rituals, one clings passionately to that and sees everything else as inferior. And this, you know, just how easily with us, what we see and what we hear and what we and the way we experience how easily the pattern of mind comes in and we cling to that and in the and the clinging to that once again we set up the duality and in that duality we find ourselves having to protect and defend the position that we've adopted even when it comes out of experience when it comes out of seeing when it comes out of hearing and this kind of situation shows itself in numerous circumstances in, 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 in our life. And what happens is that we, when we have clung to something and we've taken up a position and we're not mindful of the position, very easily we begin to expand out from the particular experience, the particular incident, and begin to generalize. And then this generalization begins to act as a tragic blindness in life to seeing a person, a group of people, a culture, a society, uh, uh, a part of the world, or whatever. Just from one experience, or one communication from what we see in the newspaper, we hear on the radio, we hear from another, and we take that up and then it fungus-like, it feeds itself. And then comes inferior. And, and With all of this, the, 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 the sheer frequency of, of exceptions deny all these rules in terms of the generalization about people or about groups. And we, we know how there are communities in the world, and I think particularly with our society and, and the kind of culture that we live in, we have adopted um, a, a, an arrogant and conceited and patronizing view of the world, an attitude of superiority that we know best. And it just feeds this way of thinking, way of thinking about the world, way of thinking about other parts of the world, way of thinking about people that are around us. And that's where the observation and mindfulness of thought, speech, the pen is 
quite vital for us to catch in on that. And then he goes on, he says, that what that which we, he says, he says, it is a bondage to depend upon what we associate with. And I wonder if you're, in, you're looking at what you do, and I look at what I do, whether you're a student or whether you're working, whether you have some involvements in the society in some way or other, and, and our particular involvement. When we identify ourselves with what we are involved with, and so we have these various associations, obviously, and, when we, and then the I comes up and identifies with those, and it takes hold of that in some way or other, what happens to the way we look around us? What happens to the way that we look at other people we work with? What happens to the way that we look at other people who are working differently from us? And this, this loss of mindfulness in our life means that this tying around our, our view and our opinion occurs. So then we might ask ourselves, why do I need to do that? Why can't I in life just live my life with a clear association with what I'm concerned about, what I'm involved about? If I sense, if something tells me inside that that work, that activity, that interest is for the welfare of one, welfare of all, and one senses that, what, can, what is my way of being with this that I'm not just trapped by it? I'm not just caught up in being identified with it. What, what, what goes on inside? And I think one of the things which, when we are caught up with, I think so frequently, it's something to do with control and power. I think disparity and the putting down of others and the upholding of views, something to do around our desire to have control and have power. And with, when that is occurring for us, what it seems to me that whenever you and I notice control going on in our life, it's useful just to stop in that moment and to say, where is the fear? Where is the fear? Because what seems to me what happens very easily, we get into a pattern of controlling. And that controlling of, over, becomes so familiar to us that we don't notice, we don't actually experience the actual fear sensation. So we're acting in a controlling manner, we want to control this, we want to have power over this, we want to stop others doing this and that, that and that control. And we do it with such frequency, we don't actually know that there's fear in there somewhere, because we don't feel it. And so sometimes when you and I, we let go of the control, or when sometimes through awareness, through mindfulness, through a spontaneous event, the control just suddenly drops away, we start suddenly experiencing our fears. Fears of loss of control. Fears of things going wrong. And then it becomes quite difficult just to experience unconditionally the thoughts and the fears which says everything is going wrong. And how confusing and painful it can be when the controls got dropped away and this is going on inside of ourselves. I think these, if we can hang in with these experiences, and just allow these potentially can be very transforming experiences because we're willing to let go of the control. And sometimes we notice with it that our views and opinions and our holding to views and opinions is to, in order to keep control.
On Wednesday evening, I was speaking in, um, in uh, Cambridge, the evening that Henrietta was giving the evening talk. And one of the, um, at, the end, at the end of the talk, I um, avoided asking, uh, answering questions um, and prefer to ask questions. So I invited anyone who had anything they'd like to say about their working day, what they would like to say. So we had a, an exchange uh, together. This is at CIMC, the centre in, in Cambridge. And one of the, of the people, one of the women said to me that while during the day she had been given in the corporation that she works for a particular position of authority. And, in this, and she had a meeting with other people in the staff, of the staff. And she had been thinking and worrying incessantly about having to go to this meeting. So she wanted to make sure that she'd have all the information all, everything, her view clearly formulated and she was going to use her authority to get through the meeting what she wanted to get through. And she'd have been, been worrying half the night about it and thinking about it and so forth. And she said, and come the, the meeting, she walked into the, uh, the, the, the boardroom where this uh, meeting was being held and she said the first thing she noticed she did was she chose the seat around the table which made her feel most important. And so she went right to the head of the table and she sat there, she said she immediately sat up very straight and, and looked very firm, very authoritative and, there, and she was ready to answer and deal with everything so that she could move through this situation and, there she, and therefore have control over the circumstances. She said then she found and the people came in and she said she just found herself listening to what they had to say and that other people had insightful and beneficial things to say. And she said what she noticed immediately was that a, everything inside settled and she found she, she got her took hold of her chair and she moved it around from the head of the table to the corner of the table. So it, it appeared like they were just sitting in a circle together around the table. So as her desire for control went and everything settled down inside of her, the very form that she was fixing to get her away had no meaning and quite spontaneously she just picked the chair up and moved to the corner and and she said the feeling was totally different. And I said to her, corporate America just collapsed. <laughs> so, so sometimes we notice with this, the power and the control, the information becomes the means to keep the power. And thus, in our looking at what we know, and the information which we have, which is obviously invaluable and can be very, very appropriate, it's not just what we know, but how we employ what we know. Thus, the information, and the knowledge, and the understanding. Bring all of that together so that in that we can listen outwardly as much as inwardly. And I think quite often, if when we're in touch with ourselves at the physical level, we actually can feel our... I think there's enough sensitivity in our um, system, in our body, to feel the difference between an understanding which is deep and knowledgeable and purposeful and control and power. I think the kind of sensations that come out of the body can tell us what the difference is between the two, if we have enough, if we're well established enough with our body awareness, if we're mindful enough of our body awarenesses.
One who does not cling to dogmatic views through knowledge does not consider himself or herself either superior, inferior or equal. When you and I, with our various views that we express in the world, and there's obviously a necessity to express them in, in the world, how much, when there is holding on, the image, as many of you reported in the small groups and elsewhere, how easily the image of what we know comes in, and then that forms superior, inferior, or equal. And often we talk about not being superior or not being inferior and how we set ourselves up and we go back and forth, often actually on very little information, as we have noticed in the meditation room. One is just in the meditation room, one knows nothing about this other person. <laughs> But one has already decided he's or she's definitely inferior. And I'm doing much better than he. <laughs> Or one goes, the other very common one, very, very common, I think with speech and with language, is that I think we often proceed in our communication very easily from a kind of inferior view. Inferior meaning that we often either we fear we've got nothing important to say or we can't express ourselves, we're not very articulate. We, we don't come across very well, and we then have the view, therefore others speak much better than I do, much clearer, much more articulate, much more educated, much more, much more, much more like a mantra goes. <laughs> and because I was hearing this so frequently from people on retreats, I began to tape with the um, people who are okay, some of the meetings. And then someone who at the end of the meeting would say, you know, Christopher, I, I, here, I sit here and listen to others speak and they seem to be, just they seem to be able to talk much more clearly and I just, I think everything I say is really nothing worth saying or whatever. Then I actually asked the person, I say, look, yeah, this is what you said, it's on tape, is it? as reasonably a good recording as one can get of what one's going to say in this world, go and listen to the tape. Listen to your voice, listen to what you say. And virtually, almost, I would say, without exception, when somebody goes to listen to themselves on the tape, who's had a view of, oh, I can't say much, I'm not very clear, I'm not very articulate, actually is frequently pleasantly surprised. <laughs> The image of oneself is so frequently out of touch with the actuality. And so, when it is we form these views and opinions about ourselves, which on sheer ordinary everyday evidence don't have much substance, if any, to it. And one of the things which concerns me in the expression of views and under <coughs> understanding, that in this world, rather tragically, I would say, the voice, frequently the voices which need to be heard in this world, the voices speaking for injustice, the voices speaking for compassion, the voices speaking for peace, the voices speaking for disarmament, the voices speaking for integration, for equality, for the people and the planet. Those voices frequently go unsaid. And what happens is that we keep living in a world where those who shout loudest and longest and most dogmatically and are most trapped in views and opinions, those voices are heard much too often and are said much too frequently with all the damaging results that go with it. And what we are seeing in this world, in the world of views and opinions, it seems to me, in a very general view and opinion, is an increase in dogmatism of the left, the right, the center, religion, and social, 
And this increase in, in dogmatism is like there's a struggle that my voice or our voice is the voice. And I, and I think there's a, a tremendous amount of exploration to find ways that the voices for compassion, the voices for justice, the voices for harmony in this world are found and are expressed without this dogmatism. And language and, the, and our relationship to language is a... a, a significant ingredient in this. <clears throat> One who has ceased to associate with dogmas no longer requires the comfort that dogmas offer. Great one line. One who ceases to associate or to be identified with dogmas no longer requires the comfort that dogmas offer. And sometimes in dogma, religious dogma, social, political, economic, all the dogma in this world, that some, it seems to me that in a world which is f seemingly fraught with insecurity and people being unsure and uncertain of themselves, and uncertain of who we are, that the difficulty in dealing with those kind of feelings, of unsure, uncertain, insecure, that that leaves us in an acute state of vulnerability. So acute that when the voice of dogma comes along, the voice that says, this is it, follow this, do this, and the potency of it, because we're having difficulty dealing with our insecure feelings, our uncertain feelings, so easily we reach out, take up the dogma, confirm it with experience, and it gives us feelings of comfort. It gives us the feelings we know. We've got the answer, this is it. So I think... It seems to me that dogma, in all of its forms that it shows itself, actually is a way of feeling secure in a seemingly insecure world. And so as the, the, the text there says, one who has ceased to identify with dogma doesn't require, doesn't need the comfort that it provides. And I think it's very Important in a way, I find it very important for myself for me to bear that in mind because it's so easy to start being dogmatic against people who are dogmatic. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy to get caught up in, you know, well, I am not dogmatic, it's they who are dogmatic, and get comfort from putting down people that one describes as dogmatic. Mm, please. You didn't explain about the feeling equal. Oh, right. Thank you. Right. And so one... Um, I just received a reminder, if you didn't hear there, to speak about the feelings of um, equality. One of the, the obvious disparate ones which we get caught up in is the feeling, it's fairly obvious, of superior and inferior. So then we equal equally have an ideal within ourselves that all life or all human beings are therefore all equal. And I think one's got to tread very, very carefully. I think it's an ideal as a, a way of perceiving it's obviously much more socially acceptable, much more appropriate to regard all humanity as Equal. And in some way, all humanity is equal in terms of birth, ageing, sickness and death. In terms of feelings, emotions, thoughts, experiences. In terms of joy and suffering. In terms of the love to have peace and harmony, hopefully, 
We might say, in that respect, all human beings are, are equal. Where we might say there are dif differences between human beings is at a particular time where a person is. And I think one's got to be very, very provisional in one's perception here. One can't, cannot say, without making it going into it, superior, inferior, that human being trapped in despair, anguish, violence, cruelty in the, in the darkness of the in, inner life could, would be the same as someone who is in a compassionate state of action and concern for others. I wouldn't say they are equal, except at the, at the human level, at the physical level. And I in the, so in the Buddhist teachings, though there's tremendous valid criticism of hierarchy and that kind of superior, inferior view which takes place, what seems to me is appropriate in life is being in contact with people from whom we know we can learn, be nourished, be fed, and be in touch and in contact with, to give us the understanding in life that we can be with people who are not of that way. And rather than, I think, paint all human beings inwardly as being exactly the same, I prefer personally to acknowledge there are differences according to the understanding, according to the states of being, according to where a person is at this or that term point in one's life, without any trace of this horrendous shadow of superior or inferior. But not to make all the same. That, I think, it extends too far, for me, I mean. And then, in just in the conclusion here, thus to one who lives with understanding what is called the sage, there is not this prejudiced view to that which is seen, heard, felt, or experienced. And thus, in living in, in the world, the mind remains pure through not grasping dogmatically onto views. And I think that it is for us in our seeing in the, and in our understanding of being in the world that just our awareness of where we're grasping onto views and opinions and what the consequences are of that, each moment that we are willing to let go of that and in that letting go, I think there's a, definite, a certain kind of purity of heart which is there. It doesn't stop action. It doesn't ex stop us expressing our understanding. It doesn't stop us from being actively involved in the world. But we watch for the dogmas. We watch for the clinging with regard to dogmas. We see how any form of dogmatic clinging contributes to the violence in the world, it contributes to the separation in the world, it contributes to the judging of oneself and the judging of others. So in, when our thoughts, when we are just writing a letter to a friend, when we are spending some time on a, on a typewriter, when we, are talk, when we are talking to somebody, if when we are expressing our views, and we are expressing our opinions, and the right to do that, and generations of past and present have struggled very hard for all of us to have the right to say what we see, to speak out what we understand, and past generations have enabled that for us to take place, and there's still other our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world still struggling 
to have that right to express their view and opinion. And yet, with that, can we be aware this is a way of looking at it? This is a way of seeing, with the trust and the faith and the action that can emerge out of it. So that we don't feed dogma in the world. We don't feed ideologies which get so out of touch with the real needs of the planet. May all beings be mindful of views and opinions. May all beings live with understanding. May all beings live with wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.